Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Global greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise, and there's no mandatory agreement to control them. But a new deal between the two largest polluters might help. It's very significant that these two players are coming to the table. It's a new era, in a way, for U.S.-China relations on climate, which hopefully will then build much more transformational change in the future. What the U.S. and China agreed and what it might achieve. Also, when a dam comes down, how the river can heal itself. We've seen pools that have amphibians in them already. There's a lot of insect activity here. It's not a moonscape. It's an early successional landscape that's just going to get better. We'll have those stories and a close encounter with an American bittern and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The U.N. has been haggling over rules to address climate change since 1992, but has yet to reach a comprehensive deal. But now the world's two largest emitters, the U.S. and China, have struck an agreement to limit their use of the potent greenhouse gases called hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs. The pact is based on the rules of the Montreal Protocol that governs the gases that destroy the ozone layer. To put this in perspective, we're joined now by Jennifer Morgan, Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the World Resources Institute. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Good to be here. So first off, what exactly are these chemicals and how are they currently being regulated on an international level? Well, these are chemicals that uh, go into refrigerators and air conditioners, and currently they aren't all that regulated on the international level. They were replacements for CFCs, which people might remember back from the late 80s, which were a main cause of uh, the hole in the ozone layer. These were the replacements for those over time. But now what's been found is that they are very potent greenhouse gas emissions and cause climate change. So don't make a hole in the ozone layer, but heat up the planet. Exactly. These are very damaging. They're kind of like super greenhouse gas emissions, a thousand times more potent than carbon dioxide, which is the main greenhouse gas that comes from the burning of fossil fuel. Small share, but very big impact. So what exactly have the United States and China agreed to at this point? Well, the U.S. and China basically have agreed that they're going to work together and that they're going to work under the Montreal Protocol to phase down both the consumption and the production of HFCs. So I think what they're aiming for is to bring other countries along to implement, to agree to, and then implement such a phase-out by 2050. So if China really goes along with this, it would be accepting then binding limits on this particular gas. Yes, that's part of how the Montreal Protocol works. Uh, There's a fund to help give support. It's unclear whether China would get that, but it's basically stepped out from its position with India and is working with the United States on this one. How significant is it that these two giant polluters are coming to the table in terms of the climate negotiations? It's very significant that these two players are coming to the table. It builds confidence, I think, of other countries, for the most part, especially in Asia, that 
they're going to work to find solutions rather than battle it out uh, and things collapse. It's a new era in a way for U.S.-China relations on climate, which hopefully will then you know, build much more transformational change in the future. How does this rapprochement over HFCs uh, impact the U.N. climate negotiations? I think it will inspire many because one of the key worries often of other countries is whether the U.S. and China can work together as the two biggest polluters. So I think it will inspire that. I think it will put pressure on countries that want to work with China, like the EU, to really step it up and have their heads of state engaging the Chinese president as well. But I think it's going to bring a bit of a jitter uh, in a positive way into the climate negotiations because it shows that international cooperation is really possible. Now, just recently, a group of countries announced that they are establishing what they call a renewables club to deal with renewable energy issues together. Can you describe that club for me and what it might mean for climate negotiations? Sure. The German environment minister uh, brought together 10 countries in total, Germany and China and India, South Africa, even the United Arab Emirates and and a couple of European countries to create this renewables club. And the main goal is to scale up renewables as quickly as possible. Germany clearly is is doing this. It's got almost a quarter of its electricity right now from renewable energy. And the goal is really step-by-step to do that and to look at how they can work together uh, to make that happen. I think uh, for the climate negotiations, it it is part of this debate of, of trying to get more ambition now because it's recognized that what's currently being implemented around the world is not enough. What do you make of uh, China and India being invited to the Renewables Club, but not the United States? It's not that much of a surprise. These countries all have ambitious national policies in place, and that has been proven to be the main thing to drive uh, the buildup of renewables. So these are major players in the global marketplace. And as of yet, the U.S. is lagging behind. So I think it's an indication of that. And then the U.S. needs to put a national policy in place to drive renewables. Then, then they can join, I think. Jennifer Morgan is director of the Climate and Energy Program at the World Resources Institute. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. The Center for Climate and Energy Solutions just reported that CO2 pollution in America is at rates last seen in the mid-1990s, partly due to power plants switching from coal to cheaper natural gas. While gas is less polluting than coal, it still pollutes, and its main ingredient, methane, often leaks from wells and pipelines. Eileen Clausen, former Assistant Secretary of State and President of the Climate Solutions Center, joins us now from Washington, D.C. There is no question that if natural gas replaces coal in power plants, there's a net benefit for the climate. But natural gas is a fossil fuel, and burning it does result in greenhouse gas emissions. And there's always been some amount of leakage. It's really an issue of the wells and the pipelines. The numbers are not huge, but methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. And one of the challenges is to make sure that there are virtually no leaks of methane as we move natural gas to the power plant, to the home, to the manufacturing facility. Where does this methane come from, you say, pipelines and wells? Um, What about fracking? We actually don't have very good data to know whether fracking itself is part of the problem here. 
there is an effort underway right now to do some real measurements so we will have a much better handle on how much methane is being released, where it is being released, and then we can apply the technological solutions that we know work to wherever those leaks are or could be. So these numbers look quite small. You say we're down to 1.5% of methane escaping. Uh, Why is that a problem? Well, let me first say that the 1.5% is an EPA estimate, and we don't actually know whether that's the right number or not. But there are many sources of methane. I mean, natural gas leaks is a relatively small amount compared to livestock or landfills or other ways that methane gets into the atmosphere. But that doesn't mean it's not a problem because methane is a very potent greenhouse gas with a relatively short lifetime. So it's more potent than carbon dioxide, but carbon dioxide lives in the atmosphere for much longer. So if you want to make short-term gains in addressing greenhouse gas emissions, dealing with methane is really important, but we actually have a lot to do to deal with methane across the board and globally as well. By the way, how do you detect and then manage a methane leak? Well, there are a whole lot of technical and engineering solutions that can help here. I mean, there are uh, zero-bleed pneumatic controllers. There are good valves, improved valves. Uh, There are corrosion-resistant coatings. Um, There are dry-seal compressors. We can do a much better job of leak detection and leak repair to make sure that not much actually gets out. So from an engineering or technical point of view, there are actually a lot of things that can be done, and we should do them. You'd think that industry would uh, want to just do this. I mean, every time they lose a molecule of methane, they're losing money, right? Well, absolutely. And, and all the efforts to date, let's say over the last 10 years or so, have been undertaken voluntarily by the industry. EPA estimates, and again, these are estimates, that leaks uh, from natural gas systems declined by about 10% between 1990 and 2011, even with the expansion of natural gas infrastructure. So there is an effort to make sure that the methane is captured, and we're hoping that those efforts continue and are speeded up so that we actually don't end up by emitting greenhouse gases from our natural gas systems. Now, where else besides electricity generation might we substitute natural gas to uh, to reduce uh, carbon dioxide emissions? There are a couple of other uses that I think would be really valuable. Um, heavy-duty trucks and fleets often use diesel there would be a real environmental benefit to replacing that with natural gas. In home heating and home appliances, we use a certain amount of natural gas, but the more natural gas we use, the better off we'll be because there's a huge amount of energy loss in our electrical systems uh, when you use electricity for heat and home heating and so on. And even in manufacturing, if we were to use combined heat and power, we would be emitting fewer greenhouse gases. So there actually are a lot of different places where increased use of natural gas would benefit the climate. The low price of natural gas these days has helped the tar sands extraction in Alberta. They use it to, uh, to make it uh, more liquid. How, how important is that use of natural gas? <laughs> it's better than using something else. Um, there's a bigger question, of course, about the tar sands themselves. When I look at the use of natural gas, I think there's no question it's a benefit. But if you're using natural gas and as a result of that not using, for example, renewables, 
that is clearly not a benefit. So it's a question of making sure that you use natural gas in ways that actually provide you with a climate benefit. Now, at the end of your report, you note that natural gas can't be the long-term solution. Uh, Why not? Well, I, I think natural gas is a bridge to a really clean energy future, a zero-carbon future. Uh, it's a pretty long bridge. We have a lot of natural gas. If we use it to substitute uh, for other fossil fuels, greenhouse gas emissions will continue to go down. But again, we have to make sure that we have better solutions, whether it's wind or solar or nuclear. By the time we get to 2030, 2040, 2050, if we really want to avoid serious climate change. Eileen Clausen is the president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions in Washington. Eileen, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's been a pleasure. Coming up, plans to build a new canal to link the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. That story is just ahead here on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. One of the most potent powers of a superhero can be invisibility. Now scientists in Singapore appear to have managed that trick for real with panels of glass that bend light and make a goldfish disappear. But in this week's note on emerging science, Alicia Zhuang reports that that's not the only way to achieve this superpower. Our science note is read by Naomi Ehrenberg. Anyone who has read the Harry Potter books remembers his reliable invisibility cloak, a magical, silky garment that helps him evade trouble. But what was once confined to science fiction and fantasy is becoming reality. Researchers at the University of Texas at Austin have developed a sort of invisibility cloak of their own. It's called a Metascreen and is made of threads of ultra-thin copper attached to a polycarbonate film. This cloak works by emitting radiation to cancel out disturbances from electromagnetic waves hitting the cloaked object. The researchers call this technique mantle cloaking and say it's better than previous technology that bent waves around an object. And old cloaks also required thicker, bulkier materials. So far, the cloak can only make objects invisible to a particular range of electromagnetic frequencies. This means if you navigated using radar, the object would be invisible. But if you used your eyes, you'd see it. But since light also is a kind of radiation, the Texas researchers say that the principle of scattering waves should also work with visible light. This development opens up many possibilities, for instance, better camouflage and more sophisticated optics technology. So the idea of disappearing with a swish of a cloak as Harry so often does in the corridors of Hogwarts, may one day also be possible in our muggle world. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Naomi Arenberg. Workers in the state of Washington have almost finished tearing down the 100-year-old dams on the Elwha River. The hope is to restore some once legendary salmon runs and allow the coho, pink, sockeye, and chum to flourish again alongside the steelhead trout. But the newly free-flowing river has churned up so much sediment that it's clogged a local water treatment plant. Still, as Ashley Ahern of the public media collaborative EarthFix reports, the rich sediment is providing excellent habitat for fish and wildlife on the Olympic Peninsula. All right, I'm on the mouth of the Elwha, catching up with Ann Schaefer, who is a tough lady to keep up with, I will tell you that much. 
everything's fresh. That's my first impression. This is a new place. I'm walking on new earth that's been delivered from above the lower dam now. Millions of cubic yards. It's making little tidal pools, sand banks, depositing hundreds of huge logs. It's coming back to life. Uh, and then this is estuary. So this is, it's unvegetated, but this is definitely the habitat that juvenile fish need. Is this Ann Schaefer stands with a group of volunteers in Hip Waders. She's the executive director of the Coastal Watershed Institute. Every month, she and the team come out to these tidal pools near the mouth of the river with a large net called a seine net. You ready? The group gently works the net in a narrowing circle, corralling the fish into one place where they can count and measure them. Shake down as you go, watch for fish. The goal is to keep tabs on what kinds of fish are using this new habitat to fatten up before heading out to the open ocean. Volunteers call out the names and lengths of each fish in the net as Ann Schaefer jots them down on a clipboard. Starry flounder, 150. Steelhead, 140, 147. Chris Burns is a fish biologist with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife and one of the volunteers today. He's cupping a tiny steelhead in his hands. Do we have a camera? I'd like to get a picture of this one. How come? Because his fins are all eroded. He really looks roughed up. All the sediment that's been released from above the dams is making life hard for fish right now. But there's more to come. So far, only one-fifth of the total sediment the dams have held back over the past hundred years has been released. And and all the steelhead look this way. They look really kind of haggard. Ann Schaefer says it's too early to know just how much the sediment is affecting fish population numbers. We're still seeing a lot of fish. We're still seeing approximately the same species richness. And then we're seeing these changes in the abundance by species. And it's too early to really interpret that other than, you know, there's a response going on. And that's certainly to be expected. The sediment rushing down from below the dams may not be great for fish right now, but it's doing wonders for their habitat. All that dirt and clay is forming new beaches and mudflats here, and the fish are using them. But the mouth of the Elwha isn't the only part of the river where new habitat is emerging. So we're going to head down here a ways, a quarter mile or so, and I'll get you out onto the former reservoir surface. Mike McHenry is a fisheries habitat biologist with the Lower Elwha Klallam Tribe. He's taking me to a place very few people have seen, because it's been underwater for 100 years. We're about five miles from the mouth of the Elwha, just above where the lower dam used to be. Not too long ago, this was a 250-acre reservoir known as Lake Aldwell. Now it's a lifeless-looking mudflat, with the Elwha flowing through it in braided, chocolatey channels. But McHenry says nature's already bouncing back. We've seen pools that have amphibians in them already. There's a lot of insect activity here. It's not a moonscape. It's an early successional landscape. It's just going to get better. This newly exposed mudflat won't be brown for long. The Lower Elwha Klallam Tribe is working with Olympic National Park to plant native trees and shrubs here. 66,000 trees have been planted, and about 350,000 more will go in above both dams by the time the dam removal process is finished. McHenry leans over to brush the green leaves of a sturdy-looking plant, fighting its way out of the sandy soil. You know, we have thimbleberry here which is a native shrub. This area was cleared and logged 100 years ago and then submerged when the dams went in. Now that the lake has drained away, giant ghostly stumps have emerged. 
Mike McHenry is not a short guy, and he is dwarfed by the remnants of these trees. And you can see the old-growth stumps. And the stumps out here are preserved almost like they were cut yesterday. And there's some amazing trees that stood in this valley at one time. The stumps make for a melancholy scene now, like something out of the children's book, The Lorax. We clamber up one of them. It's about 12 feet tall, but there are toll holds carved into the sides by the loggers that felled this tree so long ago. Mike McHenry rests his elbows on the surface of the stump. It's wider than an eight-person dining room table. He runs his fingers over the exposed tree rings, tracing back over the tree's growth history, hundreds of years. He says someday there could be trees like this here again. You and I won't be around to witness it, but hopefully our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be. So that's, that's a pretty exciting thought. And big fish. Big fish, too. Big trees, big fish, they go together. I'm Ashley Ahern on the banks of the Elwha River. Ashley's story comes to us from the public media collaborative EarthFace. It's been almost 100 years since the first ship sailed through the Panama Canal. Now, as Panama expands its canal to accommodate bigger ships, another Central American country is looking to connect the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. A deal between a Chinese company and the Nicaraguan government has been reached to build a rival canal. Tim Rogers is a correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor based in Managua, and he joins us now by Skype. Nicaragua's been sort of fantasizing about a canal for almost 150 years in one form or another, and this is a an issue that that never goes away. It's sort of a chimera that Nicaragua has been chasing for a very long time. Give us a bit of the geography lesson that makes Nicaragua a prime candidate for this. Well, Nicaragua was actually considered before Panama for the original transoceanic canal. Um, it's in Central America. It's it's uh, one of the more narrow divides uh, of the hemisphere, and it's got uh, an Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. Nicaragua also has an enormous lake right in the middle of it, which is is tempting because the spit of land on the Pacific side is very narrow. Looking at the map, Nicaragua almost makes the most sense for the canal, and that's what they originally thought 150 years ago. But of course, it didn't. Panama was a better deal because... Panama was a better deal for a, a number of considerations, one of which was the amount of seismic activity in Nicaragua. Uh, Nicaragua is very seismically active, and um, people who were Panama boosters back at that time played that to their favor by sort of stirring up fears about volcanic eruptions and earthquakes in Nicaragua. It was also very politically unstable, and that also worked to Panama's advantage. Now, tell me about this Chinese company and what role it would play in this project. Well, the Chinese company would basically be designing constructing, managing, operating the canal. Their concession is for 50 years, and they've got a 50-year option on top of that. So it could be for the next 100 years. Uh, Very little is known about this Chinese company. They're very recently formed. They're called HKND. The HK stands for Hong Kong, which is where they're supposedly based, although they are also registered in the Grand Caymans. So no one really knows much about them. Their CEO is a gentleman named Wang Jing. 
who is a telecom tycoon in China, who apparently has no experience in major infrastructure projects such as the canal. This will be his first. I should say that when we're talking about a canal project, it's really a mega project. There are really several projects that are all bundled together. The concession that the Chinese firm is getting is not just to build a water canal. It's also to build a transoceanic railroad, which would be called the dry canal. It's to also build two airports. It's to build two new deep water ports on the Atlantic and the Pacific side. And it's to build a oil pipeline across the country. So this is an enormous project. What's the back of the envelope calculation of what this project would cost and uh, who would pay for it? Both of those are very good questions, and neither one of those has been explained clearly. The government continues to change its calculations almost from one week to the next about how much this is going to cost. The original calculations were about $18 billion, uh, and they're already up to $40 billion already. And who is going to pay for it is also a good question. Nicaragua does not have diplomatic relations with China, so there is a lot of speculation and doubt about what the Chinese government role is or will be in this project. The Chinese government has not made any declarations about the canal so far. If the Chinese government were to partner or offer some financing for this project, it would definitely give them a major toehold in Latin America, which is something they're interested in doing. If they were to control a interoceanic canal, that would be a major game changer for geostrategic relations in the Americas. Now, what would be the environmental impacts? What would be the environmental costs of a project like this? Now that the concession has been approved, uh, the next step will be to start the feasibility study and then move on to the environmental impact study. So none of this has been conducted yet. But some sort of early concerns are that this could really be devastating for the Nicaraguan environment. How? Well, the concern is that Lake Nicaragua is not deep enough to host a canal of this magnitude and that it would pollute the lake. It would use up Nicaragua's water resources. Lake Nicaragua, for many years, has been considered the future source for Central America's drinking water. So if they start using it for a canal instead, that plan would go out the window. How big is Lake Nicaragua? Lake Nicaragua is one of the biggest lakes in the world. I believe it's the second biggest lake in Latin America, and the eighth largest lake in the world. I heard one statistic that you could put Puerto Rico inside of Lake Nicaragua and it would still be an island. Tim, um, do a little handicapping for us here. How likely is this deal to go forward? If history is any indicator of the success of this, then it won't happen. Nicaragua's been talking about this for 150 years. Nicaragua has had different plans on the table multiple times over the past century, and none of them have really made it beyond paper. Nicaragua, at the moment, thinks that this is its opportunity. This is its moment in history to sort of reach for the brass ring. And so to talk about this, you know, it was sort of like talking about a World Series championship with a Chicago Cubs fan. It's to sort of really touch a real sort of collective dream that Nicaraguans have and sort of the promise of alleviating this, this historic frustration. Whether or not that's going to happen, I, I don't know. What I can say is that the way this project is starting uh, sort of is under a cloud of doubt. We don't know 
how much the project will cost. We don't know who the partners are. We don't know much about the company that's about to get this concession. We don't know how long it's going to take. We don't even know what the route will be. There are about five different routes that Nicaragua is considering. Uh, so right now there are far more doubts than there are answers about this. And so it sort of seems to be getting off on, on the left foot, as they say in Nicaragua. Tim Rogers is a correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. Thanks so much for taking this time, Tim. Thanks for having me, Steve. The American bittern is a secretive bird with highly developed camouflage that literally lets him hide in plain sight. Writer Mark Seth Lender had an unusually close and prolonged encounter with a bittern in a pond in northern Maine, which is rare enough. And then, Mark writes, the bittern showed him something truly extraordinary. Stut, stut, stutter step, stutter step, stop. American bittern, he's the one who walks the walk. If you wear scales, if you're amphibian, if you sit, if you swim, if you skim the surface under his grim gaze, his beak, his bumpy ways, you're going to die, old son. Shh! Don't move an inch. In the high grass of sweet marsh by sweet water, bittern stands tall. Long neck sways to the one side, sways to the other, beak in the air like a stem, like a stalk. He looks out past that killer bill, same as you with your nose in the air. He's thinking, I can see you. You can't see me. It's true. Unless you find that tall grass of American bittern on the move. Stutter step, stutter step, stop. You'll never know the who, what, where. You'll never find him at all. A sea-old bittern perched on a stump, took a long step in and went across the pond, slipped into the weeds like butter through a sieve, vanished like the wind, like he waved a magic wand. He didn't see bittern sitting on a log, and it's one more tadpole won't make frog. She was looking down when she should have looked sharp, and it's one more minnow never get to grow up. Stop, step, stutter, he's as agile as an otter. He can hide in the shadows, he can hide in the light. Every time he goes fishing, he's gonna get a bite. (sighs) Mark Seth Lender is author of Salt Marsh Diary. There's a video he took of the bittern he encountered and many photos at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, the changing climate and its effects on one of life's oldest pleasures, a nice bottle of wine. That's next on Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 
The National Academy of Sciences says that thanks to climate change, there will be dramatic shifts in where wine grapes can grow over the next 40 years, and that could mean more wine from, say, Missoula, Montana, and Surrey, England. But researchers also predict a reduction of 50 percent in land suitable for wine in many places, including the Napa and Sonoma valleys in California, Bordeaux and the Rhone Valley in France, Tuscany in Italy, and South Africa. With the end of apartheid 20 years ago, the Cape region of South Africa put its people and its Mediterranean climate to work and built a billion bottle a year wine industry that now exports eight times as much as it did just a dozen years ago. And South African winemakers are taking the climate threat seriously, with associations offering advice on how wineries can both mitigate and adapt to climate risks by becoming more sustainable, managing water, and lowering carbon footprints. It's raining on and off on a winter day in May when I stop by the Baxberg Estate Cellars. The wine farm lies on the lower reaches of Simonsburg Mountain near Parl and Stellenbosch. A 40-minute drive from Cape Town. In 2011, Greenpeace gave Baxberg an award for climate change leadership after it became the first winery in Africa to go carbon neutral. It's a matter of pride for Simon Beck, a young man with bright, inquisitive eyes and an easy manner, who manages marketing and exports for the vineyard. He says the weather already seems less stable. We're at the, the end of May now, and May was actually a relatively dry month, so it feels like、uh, all the rain is coming in the space of a couple of days. There's a huge amount of rain that's come in the last 48 hours, and there's more to come in the next few days. So more weather volatility—that's what you're saying. It would appear so on the surface, definitely. I can't really claim, in, at least in the short time I've been working at the farm, that I can say, okay, definitively there has been a, a rise in temperatures. But I can definitely see a changing in weather patterns. You know, so for instance, this year、uh, the harvest was almost two, three weeks later than usual. Normally, in the past, we could more or less pinpoint、uh, within a few days when we were going to pick a particular block. And there is a long record to compare today's timing against. As the rain takes a break, we settle in for a chat on the veranda of the winery restaurant, where Simon Back tells me this land has been in his family for four generations, since his great grandfather emigrated from Lithuania. My family's、um, Jewish, and、uh, they were fleeing some of the interesting stuff going on in in Europe at that time. He got on a boat and arrived in Cape Town in 1902. And、um, a few long years of、uh, lots of work and probably some some tears in 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 the, along the way, but in, he managed to own a butchery in a nearby town called Paul, and he worked at the butchery for a few years. And、uh, in 1916, someone came into the butchery and said, "Hey, do you want to buy a farm?" He saw it as an opportunity, and、uh, he sold his butchery and bought what is today Baxberg. So this wine farm has been here for nearly a hundred years, and I gather you'd like to see it go for another hundred years at least. Exactly.、Um, I'm the, the fourth generation, and hopefully there'll be many more after me. There's a challenge, though.、Um, this recent paper from the、uh, National Academy of Sciences says that the area that South Africa is going to be able to grow grapes for wine is going to shrink by half、uh, over the next thirty、uh, or forty years. What does that mean for you here? No, I think、uh, climate change is is very much a reality and a challenge that the South African wine industry is going to have to face and、uh, come up with ways of of managing over the next、uh, few years. 
So when you come into your estate, there's a big sign that says South Africa's first carbon neutral vineyard. What does that mean? In 2006, mostly my father and now the rest of the company really sat down and said, well, you know, what are we responsible for as a winery and as a business? You know, what is our impact uh, on the environment? You know, we as a family, as a business have enjoyed the fruits of the land for many years. And it was kind of this feeling of, well, we now need to A, take account and B, almost reverse the reverse the clock on some of the impacts that we've had. What we've really tried to do here is produce great wine, which is something we're not willing to compromise on, but do it slightly differently and really look at what we're doing and making reductions in the emissions, reduce our impact, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Okay. So let's let's walk around and you can show us some of these things that you've been talking yeah. about. Can we talk a little bit about what's going on in the restaurant, for instance? Sure. If you look at the furniture and the roof within the restaurant, we've tried to give a kind of second life to our oak barrels. You know, the wine industry is effectively cutting down trees in France, which are perhaps 300 years old. We're turning it into a barrel. We're using the barrel for between five and seven years, and then effectively it's a waste product. And uh, what we've tried to do here at Baxburg um, is make furniture out of it. And so we've got tables, we've got chairs, and our roof is uh, covered with uh, oak staves. Well, you have a full restaurant now, so are you selling this furniture elsewhere now? Yeah, and we've actually got a a full-time carpenter who uh, makes a lot of this furniture, and we're trying to sell it as well. He then leads the way into what seems to be a mostly empty warehouse, scented with fresh wine. So now we're kind of in the heart of the cellar, and this is where, over harvest time, it's a a very busy area, and where the fermentation happens and uh, the pressing of the the grapes happen. Um, So if you look within a cellar, there's a massive demand for electricity, and that electricity is primarily used for refrigeration and controlling the fermentation. And the electricity is used to cool and pump? and Exactly. So in the case of red wine, uh, we want to control the fermentation in degrees Celsius at around between 27 and 29, and in white wine around 11, 12, 13. The way you're supposed to drink it. Exactly. <laughs> so um, uh, the things that we've done here is, is we've tried to sort of manage the electricity usage here. And in the case of red wine, we figured out, and again, this is not really so much a a technological advancement as just using some of the information out there. Um, We've got a a large irrigation dam just up up the the hill here, and we realized that uh, water beneath a certain depth was a constant 15 degrees. And as I said, with the red wine fermentation, that has to happen at 27 degrees. And so we realized we could actually just use dam water below that, that level in managing the, the fermentation. And so with all our red wine now, we're hardly using any electricity to control the fermentation. In the case of white wine, um, we couldn't use the, the dam water because the fermentation happens um, at a temperature below that of the dam water. But we can use that initial cooling and just supplement that to to control the white wine fermentation. Not only do they save on cooling costs in the summer heat, no pumps are needed to drain the fermentation vats as they are mounted on a balcony where the wine can be fed by gravity into the barrels. 
Simon estimates the vineyard has cut its electricity consumption by 20 to 25 percent by harvesting the low-hanging fruit of efficiency. And for the bulk of the remaining energy needs, they're using biofuels. A biomass boiler makes hot water for all kinds of applications, including the cleaning of the oak barrels used to age the wine. The fuel for the biomass boiler is free. Right now, we have a partnership with a, a sawmill down the road, and we're using a lot of their waste cuttings and sawdust, which we're feeding our, our biomass boiler with. But just in case the sawmill stops giving away its waste cuttings, Baxberg wants to be prepared. And so we're looking at at all sorts of ways of actually growing our own biomass here on the farm itself. And to that point of view, just look over the field here. What you see growing there is actually、um, prickly pears, and that is a huge, potentially a huge source of of biomass that we can potentially dry and feed our our biomass、uh, boiler with. And as one of the fantastic things about this plant is that it's very hardy. And it doesn't require a lot of water. What about putting, say,、uh, solar panels here or windmills? Both of those,、um, solar and wind, are becoming、um, very interesting. Up until recently, solar has actually just been too expensive. But the last couple of years, even the last year, the, the prices have come down dramatically, and there's also now a rebate that's available. So we we seriously looking at, at putting in some solar to add into the mix of what we're doing. And windmills. Unfortunately, we don't have sufficient wind over the whole duration of the year to make it a, a viable proposition. So,、uh, unfortunately, wind's not going to work for us at this stage. But you do have plenty of sunshine. We do have plenty of sunshine, and、uh, us on the farm and South Africa in general、um, is a huge resource as far as that goes. The other thing that we've done, as far as on the offsetting the emissions、um, part, is wherever we in small parts of the farm where perhaps doesn't make sense to grow vines, we've actually planted trees. And you know, here before you, you can see、uh, an array of trees which has formed part of、uh, offsetting our carbon emissions. And if you drive around the farm, you'll see little pockets of of trees everywhere. And Baxberg also sponsors the planting of trees elsewhere in South Africa to make sure they have offset all their carbon emissions. This vineyard constantly looks for ways to become more sustainable. They've planted acres of blueberries to diversify their crops, and they have a gleaming tower of tanks devoted to an experiment of making biodiesel. They've also expanded their water reservoirs as well as reusing their grey water. And under what looks like a large greenhouse frame. They're working to turn their waste cardboard cartons into an asset. So right here,、um, where we're standing now, you're seeing the beginning stages of a project which involves farming with earthworms. And、um, we've got a lot of waste carton that comes from the winery, which we're trying to to get rid of. And the worms really love to eat the carton. And basically, what happens is we, on the one hand, getting rid of the carton, and two, we having some amazing compost as well. 
and the other thing is that you can actually harvest the worms and you can mash them up and dry them and get protein and with the protein you can do a number of things as well as in terms of actually just selling it in the form of protein. Who would buy worm protein? A lot of fish farmers would use protein and I think that's going to be one of the, the shortages around the world going forwards. If you look at how our, our seas are being overfished, there's going to be a, a big shortage on, on the protein front, I think. So you apply the compost as fertilizer to your, your vines? Exactly. So we'll, we'll take the, the compost from this and uh, put it back into the vineyards and then, uh, yeah, that will hopefully all contribute to, to having healthier vines. So where are we off to now? So I'm going to take you on a little tour of the farm and specifically show you the lyre trellising system um, that we put in place, well, that we're starting to roll out uh, over the farm when we plant new vineyards. Should I put the car off or...? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Look it out for a while. So what are we looking at here now? Um, so this is a, a block of Sauvignon Blanc that we're looking at. And the interesting thing that I want to point out is that it's uh, quite a different trellising technique to your standard kind of vertical uh, straight line planting uh, system. And what you've got here is called the lyre system. And basically you plant them closer together, but then you train them left and right up into a kind of Y shape. And what you have here is almost a, a kind of double hedge and so the widths of the, the rows are wider um, so you're driving up and down per hectare effectively less but you've got more or less the same vineyard canopy space it's a real win because you're saving on, on uh, irrigation pipe you're saving on wire you're saving on poles and you're driving in the vineyard less Can we walk up just a little bit? Sure If you look at the, the slope there uh, across the way, um, there's nothing planted to vine there. And this section of the farm going down into the valley um, is an area that we've set aside for the preservation of fainbos, which is the kind of natural vegetation of the area. Um, we are part of a program which is run by the WWF called the Biodiversity and Wine Initiative. And as part of that, we've set aside 10% of our land holding for the preservation of Feinbos. And um, within that program, we are a so-called champion of biodiversity. And I think there are about 20 wineries in South Africa that uh, have gotten that status. So what creatures are here because you've set aside this land? The great thing is that we've seen an incredible increase in bird life, for instance, um, uh, every year we have a bird club come and visit and document all the, the bird life on the farm and we've seen like a number of different uh, birds coming back to this area and small buck, um, yeah, it's, it's been really amazing to see the kind of rejuvenation uh, of that area. And this is no small matter. Without conservation reserves, mature producing vineyards offer poor habitat value for native species. Just before our final stop on the tour, the wine tasting room, we meet Michael Beck, Simon's father. Michael is the third generation of Becks to grow grapes on this land and the driving force behind the innovations Simon showed me. 
I'm the chief cook and bottle washer, so I'll sign the checks or I'll shovel the (laughs) (laughs) you-know-what. Why did you decide to try to make your vineyard climate neutral? I think that it comes from uh, from a long way back when um, if you're in the agricultural sector you have access to uh, to big equipment so when the tree's in the way you don't need to work around it, you just push it out of the way and one day um, probably 15 or more years ago I was driving around the farm and I thought but hang on, we've actually done a lot of damage uh, to, uh, to the property and we needed to start to uh, slowly rebuild it back and I think that's when like, the penny dropped that um, you can farm, you can be commercial, but you can be uh, concerned about the environment at the same time. We head into the wine tasting room, complete with oak barrel furniture, the Baxburg Estate Cellars whole suite of over two dozen fine wines, including some special reserves and several gold medal winners. Along one wall, there's a group of wines that's been a real hit with the hiking and biking crowd in South Africa called Tread Lightly. It's a range of wines that's, in fact, bottled in PET, so plastic, if you will. And um, wine connoisseurs might be shocked at this notion, but, uh, in fact, there are many benefits of, of bottling a wine in PET. First of all, the, the bottle itself weighs about 50 grams, which, if you compare it to a glass bottle, which weighs about 450, 500 grams, you're talking about a tenth of the weight. You know, so if you can imagine um, how this gets multiplied out through the supply chain, you know, the shipping of the bottles to the winery and then us exporting the wine around the world, there's massive savings as far as fuel and emissions go. So what about the quality of the wines that are in these uh, plastic bottles? The wine is really good quality. Um, in fact, a number of the wines have picked up some awards, so that's that's great news. I think the, the only thing that you have to be aware of is that um, wines in pet generally at this point in time you're not going to keep for for longer than two years so if you're intending on cellaring wines in you know a proper cellar for 10 or 20 years then uh, it's not something maybe you want to do in the case of pet so you better drink it right up yeah um better drink dried up which i know in my case is not a major problem (laughs) and from what i tasted with simon back at the baxburg estate cellars it wouldn't be a problem for me either Baxburg and other sustainable wine estates are being closely watched for clues as to how well the growers of this finicky crop can cope with the increasingly volatile climate with extremes of heat, drought, and rainfall. And who knows? While there may be some territory that simply becomes totally unsuitable for wine production, good management may allow vineyards like Baxburg to continue to succeed and serve up plenty of fine and delicious vintages to enjoy in the years to come. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Ponzi Rutch, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. This week, we say farewell to Alicia Zhuang. Thanks for all your hard and cheerful work, and we welcome a new intern, Aaron Weeks. We had engineering help this week from Dana Chisholm. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. 
You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield, working to produce healthy food for a healthy planet. Stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and the Town Creek Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.